All right, please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 5, the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Today, we'll be looking at a rather large portion of Mark's Gospel. In the previous passage, we have seen that the Lord Jesus exercises authority and lordship over the realm of nature, wielding power that belongs only to God. As the disciples exclaimed in Mark 4.41, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now the Gospel of Mark relates another story to us, this time demonstrating the authority and lordship of Christ over the realm of spirits. He rules the seen and unseen realms with total absolute, comprehensive, and exhaustive sovereignty. Our passage is situated in the midst of the Lord's Galilean ministry, but here Jesus takes a brief detour before returning to Galilee. In chapter 4, he had been ministering in the vicinity of Capernaum. Huge crowds were thronging about him, and he managed to evade them by setting out on a boat. So Jesus and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. They traveled eastward, and they arrived at Gergesa on the eastern shore of the lake. A little city which, by the way, to this day still has steep cliffs and tombs. And that will become relevant here in a minute. And so that's where this extraordinary power encounter occurred. So we read about it in Mark chapter 5, and our text for this morning will be verses 20, I mean 1 through 20, first 20 verses. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had been often bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones." When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the, the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with them. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him 
and all marveled. Well, I've entitled this message, A Power Encounter with the Devil. And I have two points that I would like to bring to you today. First, the destructive power of the devil. Second, the delivering power of Christ. Our text speaks in the first place of the destructive power of the devil. The Lord Jesus no sooner arrives, according to verse 1, to the country of the Gadarenes when he is confronted by the man under satanic control. This countryside was located in a large geographical region known as Decapolis, according to verse 20. A name which comes from a combination of two Greek words, deca, which means 12, and polis, which means city. Hence, the Decapolis is the region of the ten cities, which in our reckoning were more along the lines of what we would call towns or villages. It was located southeast of the Sea of Galilee and touched borders with Galilee on the northwest, Samaria to the west and southwest, and Perea to the south. And Judea, of course, was then south of Samaria. Decapolis was primarily inhabited, get this, by Gentiles. And it was looked upon with disdain by the Jews because of its pagan culture. We know from Josephus, that first century historian, that these cities were severed from Hasmonean rule. And that uh, Hasmonean rule was that which was brought about by the Maccabean Revolution. So they were severed from Hasmonean rule by Pompey when he invaded Palestine in 63 BC and were reestablished as showcase cities of pagan Hellenistic culture and ideals. One scholar explains how the story is replete with elements of uncleanness. Gentiles were unclean. This was a Gentile region. Verse 2 says the man had an unclean spirit. Verse 3 says he dwelled among the tombs, and the tombs were unclean. Numbers 19.13 says, Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. Cut off from God. Further, in verses 11 to 14, we are told that there were also swine herders and a large herd of swine, and swine were unclean, according to Leviticus 11. The Mishnah, in fact, the Jewish oral tradition, strictly forbid Jews to ever raise swine. And so the whole place reeked of ceremonial uncleanness and was utterly inimical to the things of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ crossing the Sea of Galilee in order to enter the belly of hell, as it were. And all, the, all this makes it so surprising that the Lord would actually visit this place and minister in this area. He had told the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, when she asked him to cast out the demon from her daughter, he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The order of the progress of the gospel, according to Paul, Romans 1.16, was that it would be to the Jew first and also to the Greek. No doubt, Jesus traveled to Gergesa and delivered the demoniac as a precursor to the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles in anticipation of the worldwide mission of the church. And here we have a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus as the missionary sent from heaven who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as the brevity of his trip to Gergesa indicates, he traveled all the way over there just to reach this demoniac. He knows his sheep, John 10, 3, and he calls them by name. 
Well, this man had not just one demon, not even seven demons as Mary Magdalene had once had. He had many demons. Verse 9, then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion was a regiment or a unit within the Roman army. Originally, under the original Caesar, the legion consisted of 3,000 soldiers. But by the time of Christ, its numbers swelled to 6,000 to 6,400 soldiers with 120 cavalry and other special ops. The point is that this man was possessed by a host of demons. We don't know precisely how many because in colloquial usage in that day, the designation legion came to refer to a large, albeit indefinite, number. Many people have questioned the possibility of a man being possessed by so many devils, but it is what the gospel account says, and it is God's inspired word. And I think God's word has keener insight into the invisible realities of the spiritual realm than we do. According to verse 13, in fact, there were enough demons to cause 2,000 pigs to come under their control and to suicide off the cliff into the sea. Well, this encounter is found in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Mark's account relates the history most fully. He gives the most detail. And it's also the most extensive passage in the Bible that describes demonic possession. Matthew says there were two demoniacs. But Mark and Luke only mention one. This apparent discrepancy, though, is no contradiction because Mark and Luke never say that there was only one. They simply zoom in the camera lens, so to speak, on the one who was more prominent or vocal. The other demoniac wasn't immediately relevant to the purpose of these gospel writers, hence they omitted that detail, just like an eyewitness would naturally do who was homing in on a certain event and describing a, an event that occurred at some scene. Only in Mark and Luke do the demons give their name. And in the New Testament, the word legion occurs four times. Four times, twice in our passage, once in Luke and one other time in Matthew 26, 53. And there Jesus tells Peter, put your sword in its place. And says, or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Thus every occurrence of the term in the New Testament describes spiritual entities who occupy the unseen realm. It's interesting that legion is a military term. These spiritual entities are engaged in warfare. And they are ordered and structured under a structural hierarchy. As we see, for instance, we get a glimpse of in Ephesians 6.12. The legions of holy angels are under the orders of the commander of the Lord's armies, whom we read about in Joshua 5, who is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. The legions of demons are subordinate to Satan, who rules over the kingdom of darkness. The legion in our text was operating as emissaries of the devil and extensions of his power. And what a specimen that we have here in the example of this demoniac of an utterly wretched and depraved humanity. Now how sad, how tragic was this man's plight. He was the preeminent social outcast of that region. His notoriety and his infamy went through all of Decapolis. His family and friends had given up on him. In human reckoning, by all means, he was beyond hope, beyond reaching, beyond remedy. 
we observe in him an ominous exemplar of the destructive power of the devil. In our scientific age, people no longer believe in the power of the devil. The demoniac would have been been diagnosed with a mental disorder and locked up in an asylum. Nowadays, the devil is seen as a mythical figure or a figment of the ancient imagination or a fictitious personification of evil. But demonic activity is real. It's still rampant today, even though in the days of Christ, the demonic activity was much intensified around the Lord Jesus as Satan Satan mounted all his opposition against Christ in the fullness of time to try to thwart the accomplishment of his mission. Those who deny the reality and power of the devil betray the fact that their very denial of him is an indication that they have been blinded by his deception. Denial of the reality of Satan is often a precursor to the denial of the existence of God and goes hand in hand with it. Thus the devil is much satisfied by all the poor souls who deny his existence. But then there's another extreme. On that other extreme are those with an unhealthy fascination with the devil and his demons. We are witnessing in our culture the rise of Satanism like never before. It is now openly celebrated in public. Occultism is surging in popularity, and demonic activity is very overt and rampant in occultism. Paganism, Kabbalah, Eastern mysticism, New Age spirituality, psychic phenomena, astrology, UFO cults, witchcraft, and Wicca are all growing in popularity. The emptiness of secularism in our era is pushing multitudes of people into a renewed interest in spiritual things, but tragically, due to the depravity of their hearts, they are turning to the wrong sources for that sense of transcendental meaning or purpose. But even Christians can obsess over Satan with an unhealthy concern about him, Some charismatic Christians have an inordinate interest in the demonic realm, and they try to rout out demons from every pig and from underneath every stone. Some teach that Christians can be inhabited by demons, contrary to the teachings of the Bible. Christians can be tempted, Christians can be harassed, Christians can be assaulted, but they cannot be indwelt by demons. So such obsessions and false doctrines, the problem with them, especially this notion that believers can have demons, they undermine or diminish the sufficiency of the gospel to liberate the oppressed by the power of the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, when heaven comes down and fills your soul in the new birth, Your body is made the temple of the Holy Spirit. And any demon you might have had is expelled in the moment of conversion. Just like with Mary Magdalene. Just like with the man with the legion. C.S. Lewis said, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and magician with the same delight, end quote. Generally, however, we as Reformed evangelicals tend to more or less discount the supernatural activity of devils. And that can be dangerous because Paul said 
that being ignorant of Satan's devices could leave us unaware and undiscerning of his activity, opening the door for Satan to take advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 In reality, every single unsaved person in the world is under the sway and influence of Satan. And no less so than this demoniac. Ephesians 2 tells believers that prior to knowing Christ, they were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that lost people are in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Your people say all the time, I believe in free will. And 2 Timothy 2.26 says the will of fallen man is captive to the devil. That doesn't sound free. Now this doesn't mean that every unregenerate person is demonized or demon-possessed. But it does mean that they are nonetheless under the control of the destructive influence of Satan. What's more, we shouldn't assume that every case of demonization or demon inhabitation within a person is as blatantly obvious as the man in our text. This is an extreme example. 2 Corinthians 11, 14-15, Paul writes, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So sometimes the demonized look less like the loathsome man in our text and more like the Jim Joneses and the cult leaders, and even pastors or preachers. But here again, we have an extreme case. Satan's ordinarily covert activity is here very overt and obvious in this man. And this shows us just what the devil is all about. Satan hates God with every fiber of his being. And because of that, he hates man with every fiber of his being because man is made in the image of God and creaturely, in a creaturely way, bears that resemblance and likeness to God. One scholar said, quote, In most stories of possession, what is at issue is not merely sickness, but a destruction and distortion of the divine likeness of man according to creation. He says the center of personality, the volitional and active ego, is inspired by alien powers which seek to ruin man, end quote. And so think with me for a moment about how the description of the gathering demoniac reveals the destructive power of the devil. Consider this demoniac's dwelling, his home as it were. His habitation was with the dead. Verse 3 says, he had his dwelling among the tombs. And these tombs were rock-hewn caverns furnished with dead men's bones and carpeted with filth and vermin. Demonic influence degenerates human nature and degrades and debases the divine image in man. We know that Christ came to give us life, and life more abundantly. But Satan comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Well, verses 3 to 4 tell us that no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. This man had supernatural strength. There are still stories and 
examples of demonic possession even in our day where the possessed exert extraordinary strength. Stories like four or five men weren't able to hold down a teenage girl of 13 years old. Supernatural strength. Well, the word used when it says that no one could tame him literally means tame or subdue like an animal. Describes the wild nature of this man and his behavior. The Greek word for tame occurs in only one other passage in the New Testament in James chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, where it appears three times. So one time in our text, three times in James, that's four times in the New Testament. James says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And likewise, we could say, no one could tame this man. He was an unruly evil full of deadly demons. The vestiges of God's image were hardly distinguishable in this man, and he degenerated into becoming something more along the lines of half-beast and half-devil. Verse 5 says, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, and the sense there is he, he was howling, he was groaning like an animal, cutting himself with stones. What a miserable condition he was in. One pastor, Kent Hughes, explains, quote, The local townspeople had attempted to restrain him, but with terrifying Herculean strength, he had broken the fetters that bound him. He was uncontrollable and dangerous, and inside he was totally wretched. At intervals during the night and day, he would let out a preternatural howl then gash himself with jagged rocks in an obvious attempt to drive out the evil spirits that were tormenting him. This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic pleasure. This man, he says, was running wild, naked, unkept, and ill, and as a result, all were against him. Little children fled at his approach. In his lucid moments, he surely realized how repulsive and unloved and unwelcomed he was. What unutterable misery, end quote. Well, that's ultimately where sin and Satan will lead you if you follow them. To shame, filthiness, vileness, destruction, and unspeakable misery. The man's experience was a constant premonition to him of the terrifying misery of hell. J.C. Ryle said, quote, Such is a state to which the devil would bring us all if only he had the power. He would rejoice to inflict upon us the utmost misery, both of body and mind. He says, cases like this are faint types of the miseries of hell, end quote. What unspeakable horror. This is a rated R scene uh, that, that belongs in a horror movie in the Holy Scriptures, so to speak. Well, at the end of the age, when the common grace and restraining influences of the Holy Spirit are removed and everyone are removed from everyone who dies in their sins, and when their innate sinfulness within them overcomes and overwhelms them, and they manifest their true character, then the monstrosity of sin will be seen for what it is. And it will be shown that lost humanity is just as fallen, just as depraved as this wretched demoniac. No human power, no human resources, no human means could offer him any relief. And the same is the case with every sinner, in fact. Like the demoniac, we don't need 
merely medication or education or moralistic self-reformation, but rather we need supernatural transformation. Our sinful nature is just as indomitable as this demoniac. If you want to subdue your own sin and your own sinful habits and practices through your own willpower, you have just as much of a chance of doing that as these people had of binding this demoniac with the fetters. The source of our salvation is also just as extraneous to us as it was to this demoniac. So we need to be set free from sin's control by the power of another. And that leads us to our second point, the delivering power of Christ. Verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And this was a direct confrontation led by these demons who were paralyzed in fear at the thought of the judgment of Christ. Of course, the demoniac didn't worship Christ in a holy way. The Greek word simply means to prostrate oneself. And that's what he did. This screaming, raging, naked demoniac fell on his face before the Lord Jesus, confessing the Lord's supremacy and authority and control. And he cried out with a loud voice, it says in verse 7. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you. Greek word for implore there is literally a word which means to put under oath. The demon is trying to put him under oath that he would swear to God that he would not torment him. You'll notice the demons in the Gospel of Mark repeatedly cry out the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth even though the person in whom they were inhabiting, at least in this case, had never met him and couldn't have possibly known his name. In that day, in fact, magicians and exorcists would often try to control spirits using their name. And if you read uh, some charismatic books today that talk about demonology and expelling demons, they teach the same kind of tactics to elicit this name and use the name. Now it could be that demons, these demons, were trying to gain control over the Lord Jesus by using his name. But if that's the case, they completely failed. Instead, Jesus elicits the demon's name and exercises almost effortless control over them. Luke 8.31 adds an interesting detail here. It says, And they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. These thousands of demons posed no threat to the Lord Jesus and resorted to confessing their utter subserviency to him to just maybe elicit a little bit of mercy from him. They were terrified at the thought of being banished to this abyss. That's the underworld or the netherworld, which was associated with the dead and hostile powers. There, their misery would be greatly increased and their fate would be sealed prior to the end of the age. And then we read in verses 11 to 13, that a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, and that all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran down violently to the steep place into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, why would Jesus send them into the pigs? Have you ever thought about that? Were these not creatures of God worthy of at least being spared from an apparently arbitrary death? And this raises a moral question. 
because 2,000 swine would have meant an enormous economic catastrophe for their owners. So there had to be good reason for his actions, although the gospel account doesn't tell us precisely what that reason was. It could be that the swine herders were apostate Jews who were making big business out of selling pork to the Gentile market in Decapolis. And in that case, Jesus would have been taking a swipe at their secularization and materialism. Another possibility is that the pigs were being raised to feed the Roman army. And we do see examples of that in the ancient world where large herds were kept precisely to feed the army. And so by destroying them, if that's the case, then the Lord was making a gesture of holy spite toward the Roman domination of Israel. But whatever the case, we can be sure that there is good reason for sending the demons into the swine. And apparently when the demons entered them, the swine got so spooked that they ran straight off the cliff into the sea. And as those pigs toppled off the side of the cliff into the lake, which, by the way, the, the, the Greek uses a tense, which kind of visualizes this train of pigs. It's not like they all just fell at once. It's like they, they were falling and falling and falling off the cliff like a waterfall. And so as they died in the sea, which, by the way, pigs can swim, but not indefinitely, and they all drowned, and therefore the demons became disembodied, probably to be confined to the abyss. So the demoniac was gloriously liberated by the power of Christ. As this demoniac witnessed the stampede of the swine into the sea, it would have been a powerful visual testimony to him that he had been delivered from very real and menacing demonic forces by a very real and supernatural and superior power of this Jesus. The whole scene was a clear testimony to the saving power of Christ. And then we read in verses 14 to 15, So those who fed the swine fled, they told it in the city and in the country. It's like, what else would you do? If you were taking care of these swine and that happened all of a sudden and you saw the exchange and you heard the words and you would probably flee too. They went out to see what it was that happened. So they went into the nearby settlement, the nearby village. They told it and everybody came out. Some, some great group of people came out they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. And they knew who he was. They feared him. And yet here he is sitting and, clo uh, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. That was their response, fear. The Lord Jesus graciously, gloriously demonstrates his redeeming, saving, delivering power that he came to set the captive free, that he came to proclaim the year of jubilee to those who are bound. And their response was fear, sinful fear. Now this was an extraordinary transformation. Notice the contrast. Before encountering Christ, the man was roaming about. But now he's sitting down and subdued. Before, he was naked, but now he is clothed, probably from some garment provided by one of the disciples, because he had no clothing when he came. Well, before, he was howling and screaming, but now he holds a rational conversation with the Lord Jesus. Before, his internal torment raged like the waves of the sea, but now he had profound peace and relief. Before he was disfigured, but now the image of God was renewed in him and restored to him. It's likely the Lord even healed his wounds. 
Before he was harming and mutilating himself, but now he was concerned for the well-being of his soul and for the souls of others. Before his mind was driven to insanity by the demons, but now the text says he is in his right mind. The saving power of Christ, in other words, brought about a radical and total and comprehensive transformation of this man by the power of the gospel. And this is precisely what Christ does when he saves any sinner. None of us, is, none of us are in our right mind in the state of sin. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Madness. Madness is in our hearts and minds by nature. Living under the power of sin is insanity. It's the ultimate psychosis. But Christ in his power grants us repentance a change and transformation of mind. And he brings us to our senses. Like the prodigal who was eating slop with the pigs, that he came to himself. He came to his senses. And it's only when the Lord brings us to our senses that we will stop harming ourselves, excuse me, through our own destructive practices. Sin is destructive. And it's only in retrospect, after having received the Lord's grace, that we realize just how filthy and abominable we had been in our depravity. And so we abhor our past sinfulness and long to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Paul said that God has given us a spirit, 2 Timothy 1.7, of power and of love and of a sound mind, precisely what this man got. Christ is God's wisdom incarnate. He gives us a sound mind. He sets us free from the insanity of sin. And as wisdom incarnate, well, what does wisdom say? In Proverbs 8, 14, which speaks of the eternal wisdom that was with the Father, by which the Father made the world, which is none other than Christ. Wisdom there says, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. And that's what the Lord demonstrates. In him is understanding. In him is strength. He had more strength in the pinky of his left hand than all of the hosts and legions of all the armies of hell. And in him is found the wisdom and the grace and the influence and the power to heal your mind and deliver your soul, no matter how far you think you're gone, or anyone for that matter. Now again, verse 15 says, the townspeople heard about this and they were afraid and then we are told in verses 16 to 17, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began, I mean, notice this response. What a response. They began not simply to request of him, they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They sent him away. They were obviously amazed at this extraordinary fiat of miraculous power, the only viable explanation was that it was a miracle of God. But they wanted nothing to do with Jesus if it would cost them something. They were concerned for their capital. They preferred that the demons would have stayed in the man rather than losing their herds. They valued pigs over people and prophets over the life of souls. How sad. Is this not, brethren, is this not a scathing indictment of human nature apart from?
from grace. Unless the Lord Jesus works a miracle in our hearts, we will always prefer the, the passing pleasures of sin. Apart from his grace, we will always grasp our vices with a firm grip and refuse to relinquish them and surrender them at the foot of the cross. And apart from his grace, we will only ever remain blind to the majesty and glory and beauty of Christ, unable to discern in him a superior excellency above that of any earthly pleasure or profit or pursuit. But how different Christ is from us. How different Christ is from us. He traveled all the way over there just to reach this demoniac and deliver him and save his soul. And that was quite the expenditure on the part of Jesus, whose time was at a premium because he was in the heart of his ministry. His remaining time on earth was short, and yet he takes all this time to traverse the Sea of Galilee, to visit this place, and go all the way back to Capernaum. Thus, we are here given a beautiful glimpse into the compassionate character of Christ. James Edwards writes, quote, In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of the swineherds, considerable though it is, does not rate mentioning, end quote. And then we read in verse 18, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. And so transformed by the power of Christ, what was the man's immediate response? He begged Jesus to let him travel with him. He wanted to join the, the company of the 12 or the company of the 70. He wanted to be near to Jesus. He was ready to surrender his life, his all, to Christ out of gratitude for what he had done for his soul. He realized that he had been bought with a price, that he had been liberated by the precious power of Christ. And so, when we are transformed by grace, we too will cherish the opportunity to be, simply to be with our Lord Jesus Christ, to know him, to sit at his feet, and to follow him in a life of committed discipleship. But what did Jesus tell him? This is curious. Verses 19 to 20, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friend. Now, in not permitting the man to follow him, he wasn't barring him from salvation. The man could follow him through a life of discipleship from a distance. The man could join the church later after Christ ascended and the apostles would plant churches all throughout these regions. But right now, Christ had a mission for him. And so he said to him, go home to your friends. And tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim it in Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. The man in his sound mind became a trophy and testimony to the transforming power of Christ. Every person he would meet, every conversation he would have, would point to the undeniable miracle of how the Lord had set him free. I bet the man was hardly recognizable after the fact of his transformation. But as soon as anybody would realize who this man was and what he had been, undeniable miracle. And so the Lord saved him in order to send him. He saves us in order to send us. Salvation is meant to propel us into service for the good of our fellow men, especially for the good of eternal souls. 
And then it actually says that he departed and began to proclaim the good news. And the sense of it, he, he began to proclaim, which suggests that he went on and on and on proclaiming and that this was just the inception of it. And proclaim in the Greek is a strong word, keruso, which means to announce publicly like a herald, like one who stands in the gates of the city crying out some kind of news. He saves us to send us to proclaim the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And this man was filled with such gratitude, such love to Christ, with such joy in his soul, you see, that he could not contain it. And in sum, friends and brethren, the story of the demoniac assures us that there is no soul too stuck in sin that Christ cannot rescue. There is no mind so far gone that Christ is unable to restore it. There is no sinful habit so entrenched that Christ cannot break it. There is no devil too strong that he cannot cast it out. There is thus hope for the outcast, hope for the downcast, and hope for the chief of sinners, which we are. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord Christ, we do bow to you, and we worship you, and we confess, Lord, your unrivaled authority and sovereignty and power and exaltedness and majesty and glory and matchlessness and excellency and beauty and all your glorious attributes in every way. You are, Father, you, you are Christ, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the joy of our hearts. Fill us, Lord, with such joy, such assurance of faith and joy that we would be like this transformed man and that we would tell the whole world about what glorious things you've done in our souls. Fill us, Lord, with that gratitude, we do pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.